Our lesson, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come together again this evening to study the last part of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, the good part, you might say, the friendly part, uh, the love part, which is very important to all of us. And so we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening as we go through this beautiful section of uh, the letter to the Romans and help us then to take it to heart so that we understand how it should affect us today. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. I hope now that you, after you've read 12 and 13, and I'm sure all of you have, um, that you've seen a little bit uh, lighter, more friendly side of Paul. His letter ends in a much better tone and attitude than it certainly started out. And again, if you were thinking of this letter uh, that we call it, you know, we used to call it epistle these years ago, which was Greek for a letter. Of course, everybody said that's Greek to me. Uh, oh, where was I? I, <laughs> I was more interested in my bum joke than I was <laughs> where I was supposed to be. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's the way it goes. Anyways, someone did ask me not too long ago, is this really a letter? And as I think I explained early on in uh, this session, yes, this is really a letter, uh, but not in the sense of how we write letters today. And of course, with all of the electronic gadgets we have, even letter writing has just about disappeared. But nevertheless, if you think back 10, 15 years ago, uh, and particularly uh, to the Second World War, and I'm sure a few of you might go back that far. <clears throat> uh, there used to be campaigns to do uh, letter writing to the uh, people in the, the services, you know, pen pals and that kind of thing. Um, Paul's letter to the Romans is not that kind of letter. It is more of a teaching, and it is intended not only for the Roman recipients, uh, who were primarily Gentile, but all of the people in Rome that made up Christianity at that time. Uh, but it was also intended to be spread to all of the churches. And therefore, it is not a letter in the traditional sense of what we think of letters today. All right? Um, and so... It's got to be looked at in a totally different way. That this is a teaching on certain aspects of our faith and how we then carry that faith out. And that is the part we're getting into today. If we have faith in Jesus Christ and we believe that he came to this earth to live, to teach, and to eventually die representing all mankind 
to the Father, and the benefit of his passion, death, and resurrection is given, or it is extended to each and every one of us, if we partake of it. And we partake of it through our faith. And that is only the beginning. After we have accepted the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, then we have to live by his teachings. And part of those teachings is live by the teachings of the church. And so many people kind of uh, don't see that connection between what Christ did for us, what it was meant to be in terms of the overall redemption of all mankind, even those who came and died long before Christ, during his lifetime and long afterwards. He represented all mankind and the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection extend to all mankind if they partake of it and they partake of it through faith. Now, as I was explaining earlier to a couple of gentlemen here, uh, the people in the 15th century the followers of Martin Luther, not so much Luther himself, but some of his followers, began to look at this and say, well, if faith is a gift and it doesn't come by things that we do, in other words, we don't have to earn it, it's a gift to us, we can then just say, I've got faith in Jesus Christ and I believe in him and then sit back and not worry about anything else because if salvation has already come through this one acceptance of faith then I don't have to worry about anything else and Paul is saying no that is not correct that is not correct thinking because you can't stop there faith is a continuing process okay it is something that requires you to be consciously aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it throughout your entire life. It is like a friendship or like a marriage. You cannot just say, well, I got married and I don't have to worry about anything else. Well, you wouldn't stay married very long, I'm sure. Okay? Marriage, a good marriage, is work. Now, it may not sound like work, you may not refer to it as work, but let's not kid each other. A good marriage requires work. Alright? And any good relationship requires effort to keep it going. It cannot be all one-sided. It cannot be focused on one thing. It has to be all-encompassing. And So Paul has tried to put that into his letter here. And we are now coming to the end of it, which of course is the whole concept of love. Alright. I'd like to go through and read the chapters and then uh, I hope everyone of you have picked up a copy of this handout which I've made and used for many years. 
because it ties right into not only what we are doing here, but it ties into the whole biblical concept of discipleship. So, let's begin at chapter 12. And I'm sure that all of you have found this much easier to understand uh, than some of his earlier chapters. Sacrifice of the body and the mind. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Well, let's pause for a moment. The whole idea of sacrifice, people misinterpret the word sacrifice. It simply means offering. It does not mean bloody. It does not mean crucifixion. You know, those things are sacrifices. But a sacrifice can be uh, giving up your own free will to someone else. In this case, Christ himself. Or directing your likes and your dislikes in accordance with the will of God. All right. That's what they're talking about here. Let's kind of change a few words here, all right? The offering of the body and the mind. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer, and there is the word, that's what he means, not sacrifice, you don't have to go out and slit your throat or anything like that. Uh, Some of us wish we could or would at times, but uh, that's beside the point. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, and uh, uh, pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Okay, I want to give you a reading from St. Peter, who essentially says the same thing. This is Peter's first letter. Chapter 1, no, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, however, you, however, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is Peter now, okay? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people he claims for his own. This is Christ, or God, through Christ, uh, to proclaim the glorious work of the one who called you from darkness into his marvelous light. And he goes on to say that we are like living stones rejected uh, by some, but nevertheless um, built as an edifice of spirit into a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The same idea. And you're going to see Paul kind of repeat some of the things that you have heard or have learned from other writings of the New Testament. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. In other words, 
conform your whole life to the teachings of Christ. And then he goes on here in the next part to repeat something that he went through in a lot of detail in the first letter to the Corinthians uh, by using the analogy of the human body to the church. says, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than one ought to think, but to think soberly, each according to the measure of faith that God has apportioned to him. For as in one body, we have many parts, and all of the parts do not have the same function. And so we, though many, are one body. Does that sound a little familiar? Can you think of the song that we sing, one uh, bread, one body? So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual uh, parts of one another. In other words, what he's really saying is that as members of the church, we all have different talents and different capabilities, different personalities, and God uses all of those to uh, edify the body, the whole church together. And each one of us has a part to play in that. We have, as we've said before, um, a role in God's plan of salvation. And when we all bring our roles together and fulfill them, that is when the church, or Christ through the church, is glorified. Since we have gifts that differ according to the graces given to us, let us exercise them. If one has prophecy, then he must exercise that in proportion to the faith if in ministry, in ministering, if one is a teacher in teaching, if one exhorts in exhortation. Now, you all know what exhortation is, all right? Teaching something in the imperative. You must do this and you must do that in order to fulfill this or that, okay? It's in, we would probably not use the word exhortation today, but let's say encouragement. If one contributes, in, he must do it in generosity. If one is over others, supervises, with diligence. If one acts out of mercy, he should do it with cheerfulness. Let love be sincere and hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Now, what I'd like to do for a moment is have you strike that word affection, okay? Because affection at the time of Paul is a different meaning than what we have today. Affection, all right? If we'll stop here and take this diagram 
All right. I hope you all have a copy of this. I want to go through and explain the biblical interpretation of the word love. We hear so much about love today. Oh, I love this hamburger. Well, you know, you really love a hamburger? I doubt it. Uh, but, you know, oh, I love this music. Uh, this rap music. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay? Let's look at the Biblical interpretation of love. It does, let's just, right up front, it does not mean affection. Affection is an emotion. And love is not an emotion. Love requires a decision. And it might take a split second to make that decision, but nevertheless, Love requires decision-making, whereas affection requires, or it doesn't require anything, really. It's strictly an emotion, all right? But love is an overall word for many things. The most important is respect for the dignity of another person. Right at the top of this chart. Respect for the dignity of another person. Whether you like that person or not is immaterial. You have to realize that that person is also a creation of God, a child of God, and therefore you must treat him or her as, or with dignity and respect. Okay? Then, part of your demeanor should encompass compassion, forgiveness, integrity, humility, charity, understanding, and there are many other virtues, and I'll just leave them in a general category of other virtues. But you see, each one of those requires a decision on your part to act in that capacity. It cannot be done through emotion or on the spur, spur of the moment uh, unless you are inclined to operate that way. But then, again, if it is done without thinking, it is emotion and not a decision. It is not love. But, love, true love, cannot come without some understanding of God. It might be a minuscule, or it might be a basketball. But nevertheless, it has to be some inkling of God, of a creator greater than anything on earth. All right? And I'm talking even about primitive societies. Primitive societies still had some idea of a creator, somebody greater or higher than themselves. And it is that knowledge or experience of God 
that allows us then to participate and grow in love. We cannot do it without that. Yes? Really? I would say yes, you're right. Well, my feeling is there are no true atheists. You know, they may say so, but deep, deep down, uh, like they always say, at least during the Second World War, there was a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. That once the chips are down and you're facing something that could be your death, you are thinking beyond that. Yes, sir? That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. What Susan... Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right. That's a good good point. But Susan has just said that if there is such a thing as a true atheist, then they shouldn't be offended. Okay. Um, because it has, you know, they have no basis for being offended. Um, but that's a, a moot point that we, you know, we can't answer right here. But my gut feeling is that there are no true atheists. All right. Uh, they like to feel that way because it justifies a lot of other things that they do or are involved in. Yeah. But I still believe that true love, truth and love, true love together, must be based on some inkling, some knowledge, some experience of God. And that's why you have these arrows pointing from God to the circle that says love, and then love must be shared. Love cannot be bottled up or stand idle. Love must be shared, and the way we share that is through discipleship. And we have many ministries here, and there are many others that are not here, uh, but discipleship True discipleship includes ministries to others, devotion to God through Jesus Christ. It affects your lifestyle. It reflects and affects your relationships, your witness about God to others, obedience to God through Christ and through the church your prayer life, and your mission, or your role in God's plan of salvation. Does that make sense? How love comes based on a knowledge and understanding of who God is, maybe not to the nth degree, not to the point of theologians or great scholars, but Everyone has some inkling of a higher power, all right? And those of us who have been blessed by being born into or have joined the Catholic Church, we have a very good understanding, or should have, of who God is. 
and that should permeate our life. And therefore, love can exist within us, but it cannot be bottled up, and therefore it must be shared. And it is shared through discipleship. Does that make sense? Uh, any questions on on this? All right. Let us go on then. <clears throat> Let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. I don't like the word affection, but it is there. All right. Anticipate one another in showing honor. Do not grow slack in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. All of these things are really diagrammed for the modern use in that illustration that, I, that you all have. Rejoice in hope and endure in affliction. Persevere in prayer. That is the prime ingredient that begins all of this. And that is prayer. All of this information that you have read and hopefully understood, all that I have talked about up here will not do you any good unless you take it to prayer. That is utterly important to all that we do. Prayer is what really ignites the love of God in us and promotes us or helps us to uh, further our relationship with him and then to express it through discipleship. At 16, it says, have the same regard for one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay evil, anyone evil for evil. Be concerned for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, on your part, live at peace with all. Beloved, do not look for revenge, but leave room for the wrath, that is, the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Not literally. Not literally, please. Uh, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil uh, with good. Um, Every time I read that, I think of that horrible situation in Iraq where after Saddam Hussein was toppled and we, we, the American forces, gained control of the prison there and turned it around to uh, incarcerate some of the 
of the Iraqis that we felt were uh, severe enemies and how they were treated. You all, I'm sure, are very much aware of some of the pictures and the horrible stories that came out of that. I wonder where were these people, what was going on in their minds that they were treating prisoners in such a way. Yes, these people may have done some very serious things, but two wrongs don't make a right. And these people, that is the American forces, who were treating the Iraqi prisoners so horribly, uh, really never had this lesson, I'll tell you, or couldn't have had. And if they had and were ignoring it, uh, double shame on them. Okay. Some of this probably sounds very familiar to you. And if you think about it, uh, Jesus himself taught many of these same points, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, you'll see many of these a little more detailed than this, but nevertheless, the points are pretty much the same. And even some of the wording is very close uh, to what is in Matthew's Gospel. But that is probably uh, because the stories about Christ were repeated over and over and over. Even some of Paul's letter uh, to the Romans was repeated or is a repeat from some of his letter to the Corinthians. So, repeating was caused by the fact that these letters originally were intended for a narrow group of people. And therefore, repeating had its purpose. If it was good for one group of people, it was also then good for another group of people. And that's why you have some of uh, Paul's teachings repeated two or three times in different letters. And, and that's fine. But he's also sort of uh, paring down the words, but nevertheless repeating a lot of the teachings of Christ. Let's go on to 13. Obedience to authority. Here's another one. Um, let every person be subordinate to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been established by God. Uh, does that recall, or do you recall hearing that in another context? Anyone? Hmm? Yes, but... Or I will bring that up in a minute. Uh, John just says, render to Caesar. Yes. Jesus was you bet. That's the one I was thinking of. Yes. When Jesus was talking uh, to Pilate on the day of his execution, all right, um, he's talking about authority. And Jesus, you know, Pilate says, do you not realize I had the authority to do this, this such and so to you? And Jesus said, you wouldn't have any authority if it wasn't given to you by my Father. That's exactly what it says here. Okay. 
Yes. But the render to Caesar is uh, another uh, point. Okay. Uh, that's also in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and the point is, if we are under lawful authority, civil authority we're talking about now, we must obey that because that is part of what God is asking of us. Because lawful authority ultimately comes from God himself. And therefore, we are uh, obeying part of something that God has given to mankind through one source or another. But nevertheless, we're talking about lawful authority. All right? But how many people you know, including perhaps yourself, uh, sort of uh, zip through uh, and make right-hand turns at stops uh, be- without stopping, okay, even though it's a, a red light? The rules of the road say you can make a turn on a red light after you stop. But how many people really do that? And that's just a, a minor example. But nevertheless, I I almost got a ticket for doing exactly that, zipping through. But it taught me a lesson. All right? And now I realize that I'm under a certain authority. And that authority is, in this case, the rules of the road. And it's there for my good and the welfare of others. But we have other forms of the render to Caesar. In this case, uh, in the story from Matthew's Gospel, it is about paying taxes. Uh, And I think what they did was they asked Jesus if it was lawful uh, to pay taxes because it was being paid to the Romans. All right? The Jews had to pay taxes to the Romans because it was an occupied territory. And Jesus said, uh, rather than coming out and saying, no, uh, you shouldn't do that uh, because that's not what he believes in, they would have had him on one count. And so if he says yes, then the Jews would have been against him. So what he does very cleverly says, whatever is God's, give to God. Whatever is man's, give to man. He puts it in the terms, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But he's talking about obeying lawful authority, whether we like it or not. Whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed. And those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear to good conduct, but to evil. Do you wish to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval from it. For it is a servant of God. That is, lawful authority is a servant of God for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword 
without purpose. It is the servant of God to inflict wrath on the evildoer. And therefore, it is necessary to be subject not only because of the wrath, but also because of conscience. And that is why you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, toll to whom toll is due, and respect to whom respect is due. And that's why respect is at the head of that circle there of love. All right. This next section, you should kind of all circle in a way because it is very, very important. Clear and small and or brief as it is, it is a very important statement. And more so for the Jews of its time. Okay. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for love does no evil to the neighbor. Hence, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, to Jews, at the time of Christ, that was almost heresy. And that's how Jesus got into a lot of trouble. Because it was the temple rulers who actually made a living off of forcing people to observe the 613 Mosaic laws. All right? But Jesus narrows them down to two. Love of God and love of neighbor. Now, obviously, that's a very simplistic statement. It has very deep implications. And that is what we have to look at. All right. But the idea, the overall writing, overriding idea, is that love of God and love of neighbor, if we fulfill them as we should, as intended, then that automatically fulfills all of the important mosaic laws. That's what he's talking about, the mosaic law. Um, And that's why it is repeated right here at the bottom of this illustration. Any question on that? Awareness of the end time. And do this, meaning love, because you know the time. It is the hour now for you to awake from sleep. For your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It was thought 
at this time period, the time of the writing of this book or letter, uh, that the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, would be within their lifetime, very shortly. Uh, whether it would be years, months, they didn't know, but they felt very strongly, Paul uh, shows an example of it right here, but some of his later letters, he realizes that that isn't the case, and then he uh, changes. But nevertheless, here it is thought that the end of the age, the end of time, would be within their particular lifetime, and Jesus would return. And so, he's really saying, uh, do this because you know the time. It is the hour now for you to awake from sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is advanced, the day is at hand. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he preached the same thing. And it really stirred up the people because they were really concerned that the people who already died may get missed in this uh, being lifted up in the tribulation. Right? The tribulation is not in the book of Revelation, but in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Alright. Gotta get your tongue straightened out here. Okay. And the people were really worked up. So finally he writes this letter stating that no, everyone will have an opportunity to be taken to heaven and be judged. Alright. But the whole idea is kind of in this kernel of a few words here. let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light let us conduct ourselves properly in the day not in orgies and drunkenness not in promiscuity and licentiousness not in rivalry and jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh sinful desires of the flesh is what he's referring to a big mouthful, but it's something that I hope you will really take to heart because it's extremely important. Right? The whole idea of love. And let me go a little bit further. Love is equivalent to truth. God is love, but God is also truth. And when we skirt the truth or ignore the truth, we are, in fact, ignoring God. Didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Not full of truth, not representing truth or anything. He was truth. The same as he is love. God is love. God is truth. And when we turn our backs on truth, the essence of truth, we are turning our backs on God himself.
And it's something people don't think about, or they don't think about it enough, and they should. Very important. Any questions? Yes, Norm? Well, wait a minute now, Norm. You have to speak louder because I can't hear you. Okay. Hermeneutical uh, implication: if civil authority is from God and ordered under God, then he can be followed by the civil authority that does not respond to God's will. Then he considered he's qualified for the true authority, and so it could be resisted for conscience' sake. And it kind of go back in the history for the divine right of kings, which was, you know, I can't think of what that particular time period was when that kind of went out. And we can put, throw the quotes in there. And, and the Reformation probably knew something like that. Well, yeah, but the point here, lawful authority again, but something that is considered illegal or unlawful can be rejected or resisted uh, for conscience sake. Yes, it was. And yet, look at how many people were mesmerized, you might say, into accepting that. But you wonder how many of them did it out of fear of their own lives. Um, yes, what John has just said is that the whole uh, Nazi situation during the before and during the Second World War could be uh, classified as illegal authority, uh, but Hitler and his whole regime was so mesmerizing that many people got kind of swept up into it and believed it sincerely, even though it was decidedly wrong. Hysteria, yeah. Well, that's right. Uh, but there, there is no lawful authority. You know, everyone's jockeying for power and trying to create themselves or present themselves as the, the rightful authority. And that won't happen until the people in general come to some kind of peaceful way of deciding who is right. Yeah. And that might take quite a while. Yeah. Yes. I've read it. 
she was making that he did it more as an individual rather than as the head of the church. What's that? so long, from roughly the middle 1930s, uh, you know, right up until 1945, uh, how could so much evil exist without the world rising up against it? And yet, there was very few nations that did that, very few. Some declared themselves uh, neutral. Yeah, you know, like Switzerland. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm closing my eyes to the whole thing. You know, well, that that doesn't do any good either. But this is not a point. Yes, what? Yeah, well, neutral, though, is... Neutral is like zero, okay? Neither good nor bad. Okay. All right, but we'll never resolve that point uh, to all of our satisfaction. Yes. What's discouraging, <coughs> what's discouraging, is you had Hitler, I'm sure there's others before him. You also had Japanese, whose emperor was God, and whatever he said, everybody just followed. And we haven't learned from that, because I believe that right now in Iran, we're building up to the same thing, and we're very on near a brink of nuclear war between Iran and Israel. Yep. Because none of the nations will stand up against Iran except for the United States and England. That's right. And why? Because of the commerce between Iran and those other countries. Yeah. Okay. Steve? Just one point that, you know, we're talking about the the Nazi Holocaust there's an even greater Holocaust occurring today. That is, over 50 million beings have been avoided in this country alone. And God will not bless this country while that is going on. There's more than 4,000 a day that are avoided. 
every single day. Yeah. And and that gets. No one talks about it. Here we are saying that Well, the thing is, what we've got to do, and those things exist because the majority of us sit back and do nothing about it. And that's true throughout history. Uh, the good people sit back, and it's the people with evil minds or uh, who have departed from the truth uh, altogether who seem to have the day because the good people just don't do anything about it. As a group. Speak up, Norm. Came, I yeah, can't. They, oh, they came for the Jews, and I didn't do anything. They came for the Gypsies, and I didn't do anything. They came for the homosexuals, and I didn't do anything. Then they came for me, and they didn't do anything. Something like that. Wow. Yeah, good point. Good point. All right. Let me change the subject a little bit. <laughs> 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 next week is our last meeting the readings are much easier and clearer and hopefully we'll go through them a little faster and do a summary of St. Paul his life and his letters but I would also like to talk about what you people would be interested in discussing in future, in a future session of this kind. Uh, we will be ending our session of nine weeks next week. Uh, we do then have a schedule beginning somewhere around the end of January uh, leading up to Easter. So there's another nine or ten weeks and I would like to know what you people would like to study at that time period. Uh, anyone have any thoughts now? Uh, Diane and Susan have, but I think they're afraid to get up and say, She's not afraid. Yes, Mary Lou? Well, there you go. Uh, that's exactly what uh, Diane and Susan were thinking. What about the other letters of Paul? All right. How many people would like to do that? Okay. That sounds kind of interesting. Um, anyone have any other ideas? Dick? I don't know if there's any supporting documentation of this album, but I would like to see something... Um, on the on meditational type readings, for instance, the Psalms and maybe uh, other portions of the Bible that I'm not that familiar with, that would be inspiring and uh, inspirational. Well, the whole wisdom literature is uh, very uh, inspiring. Um, we did something like that five or six years ago. Um, 
Anyone interested in exploring the wisdom literature? That is Proverbs, uh, Psalms, um, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, two separate books, Song of Songs, those books. All right. There's a lot of very beautiful uh, prayers in there. And, uh, but I will warn you right now, it's not any easier than Paul to understand. <laughs> well, we discovered Paul is easy to get into the right chapter. Oh, yes, that, that does help. That does help. For instance, the Book of Wisdom was written somewhere around the second century BC. It looks at God as a mother and refers to God always in the feminine. So, ladies, if you think that the Bible is totally male-dominated, you should read the wisdom literature, because there God appears uh, and is talked about in the feminine gender. All right? More or less in the uh, person of a, a mother. Right? doesn't use the term mother. It talks about wisdom and she. Wisdom, she is this, or she does that, or says such and such. Okay. But it is the same idea, the same concept of a mother's love. All right. So, uh, that's, I think, very interesting. Um, Proverbs is extremely interesting, but it doesn't have the continuity that Paul's letters do. So you do have some problems there. All right. These are isolated statements. Uh, most of it was intended for young people, uh, say teenagers. And teenagers today wouldn't even give it a second thought, unfortunately. But that's what it was intended for. It is a way of uh, looking at what life should be. Proverbs. Uh, yes, sir. Um, yeah, that that would be something I would like to do also, because I love history. Uh, I love to explain history. And as those of you who took our session last spring, you know that we did quite a bit of discussion of the four major periods of Jewish history and how it affected Christianity. Okay. And that's what probably you would be interested in. Um, but I, I hesitate to repeat something that we've done so quickly, so recently. Yeah. No, no, that's true. 
uh, what Mary Lou just said is that when you put the letters in the right scene, so to speak, and you talk about how they were written and why they were written, uh, it adds a great deal to the understanding. Uh, we have a letter in the back of the Bible that is truly one of my favorites, and that's the letter to the Hebrews, which is not written by Paul. But nevertheless, um, it is a book written definitely to Jewish converts, primarily Jewish converts in Rome also, who were facing the persecutions under Nero and were waffling about returning to Judaism in order to save their souls and their, their lives. Um, the whole book is written in the vein of you can't go back. Once you've accepted Christ and you understand what Christ did for you and the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection, you can never go back to Judaism. That's returning you know, to something that truly no longer exists. All right. Uh, so Hebrews, I think, is, is fascinating because you have to inject the history that is going on at the time and that preceded it. Okay. Yes, Dick? The current issue of uh, Columbia, the Knights of Columbus magazine, has an article in it that says we should teach our children about saints. Yes. Now, again, I don't know what's out there literature-wise, books that would support it, but maybe it's time to leave the Bible for one session oh. and talk about our saints. Who are our saints? What did they do? What did they bring to us and what can we learn from them? Uh, that would be a very interesting subject. Uh, in fact, John Paul II, I mean, uh, Pope Paul, well, Pope Benedict XVI just wrote a book called The Doctors of the Church, all of whom are saints who have been given the title of doctor of the church, and that doesn't mean a medical doctor. All right. In most cases, it's the doctor of philosophy or doctors of letters. Uh, there's about 22, I think, listed in there, three of whom are women. Okay. Um, and that would be very interesting. How many of you would be interested in, as Dick uh, just said, setting aside the Bible and do something that is somewhat related, but not strictly in a Bible. Well, there seems to be a little more interest in there. Yeah. Um, let me give it some thought, and we will talk about it next week. All right? Uh, anyone opposed to doing that? Anyone opposed to leaving the Bible for a session and talking about something else? All right. Because technically, you can't put aside the Bible. Yes. Yes. You cannot because if a saint is recognized as such, like Mother Teresa while she was living, all right, uh, was recognized as a saint. And by the way, she's not in that book. Uh, 
she lived by the teachings of Christ, which are in the Bible. All right. So, yeah, as Steve just mentioned, uh, you don't get very far away from the Bible when you're talking about the saints. So that might be a very interesting uh, discussion subject. Again, how many people would be interested in that? Okay, good, good, good. All right. Yes, Mary Lou, do you have... Uh, yes, yes, you're right. Yes, what Mary Luce said and is in reference to the part of Father Steve's homily, um, I think it was the week before because it was there at uh, All Saints, uh, all preceding All Saints Day. Okay, because it was on the Sunday before All Saints, which was on a Monday. All right. And he made the statement, which a lot of people sort of gasp at, uh, because they never realize it that way. But it is true. I've said it myself many times. Everyone in heaven is a saint. Okay? Everyone in heaven is a saint. Now, that doesn't mean that you feel that, you know, your Aunt Minnie, who was a living saint on earth, is now a saint in heaven, so you can call her Saint Aunt Minnie. Okay? No. The word can, the word canonization, all it means is their name is on a list of people recognized as being in heaven. And therefore, by virtue of being in heaven, they are a saint. But it took a lot of effort in promoting that person through a very difficult course of action by the church to be put on the list of canonized names or list of recognized names, all right? I just happen to know somebody who is working on uh, the cause for canonization as it is referred to of Solanus Casey, all right? He has now reached the second stage of venerable. Right, the first stage is servant of God, the second stage is venerable, the third stage is blessed, and the fourth stage is saint. Okay? And it takes many, many years uh, to go through that process. Some people, of course, go through a lot quicker than others. It is interesting that the saints, the cult, as we call it, of the saints, uh, was never formalized until around the uh, 11th century A.D., of course. Uh, prior to that, saints were sort of declared by acclamation. In other words, for example, let's take St. Christopher. All right. The reason why the Pope recently, in the last 10 years or whatever it was, sort of downgraded or sort of soften the whole idea of uh, there ever being a St. Christopher is because there is no record 
whatsoever of anything relative to a St. Christopher. Okay? In other words, it was perhaps a legend that developed over the actions of some person who the people in that particular location felt was a saint uh, because of some things that he might have done and a sort of legend grew up. But there was no record. So therefore, uh, the church has taken the name of St. Christopher off the list because there's absolutely no record. All right. And that's true for a number of people that are on that list. Uh, the church took over the official uh, role of recognizing those people who were truly in heaven by this process. But that was not done until the late latter part of the 11th century or first part of the 12th century. All right. As I said, prior to that, people were declared uh, saints by acclamation of uh, the people immediately around them. And uh, many, many uh, kings and queens were uh, considered saints, even though they had a lot of sort of background, but they did also a lot of good for the church. And so they, and that has all been done away with. Uh, no one can be put on the list of canonization without going uh, through this rather exhausting process. Okay. So. Yes, Norm? Uh, yeah. Uh, the and the of the church, uh, Alvarez, and yes. Yes. Uh, just so happens they're all Carmelites, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that might be an interesting thing. Let me give it some thought, and I'd like you to think it over, and we'll talk more about it next week. Okay. Any other questions? Why we you've got fifteen or twenty minutes? My goodness, I can't let you out so soon. Uh, but it's cold, Steve. There's a book on a companion website called The Fathers Know Best. Uh-huh. That, uh huh. The book is kind of a resource that gives quotes on topics from the fathers of the church, and the website has some interactive videos. It's put out by one of the guys. Oh, okay. All right. That's not with uh, Robert. Uh, what was his name? <laughs> Father knows best. Okay. All right. All right. If there's no other questions, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to explore our thoughts and our understandings relative to. Um, Paul's letter to the Romans and other subjects. And that is what uh, these meetings are all about and for. So we ask your blessing on our efforts. And as we go through this week discerning what it was or what it is you would like us to study next week or next session, help us to know that. Help us to come to a consensus of understanding what your holy will uh, has in store for us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.